like this show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free and they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And welcome to the Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. I want to uh, thank all the people who've been um, becoming patrons this month. Yeah. Um, it's really great. Um, I think it's our biggest month so far. And if um, you want to help us out as well, that'd be great. Because again, we really want to uh, pay for someone to transcribe our episodes. Yes. It's. <laughs> It's the first thing on our to do, to want, we want list. We want this and we will to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you. I wonder what, I wonder if an episode got shared or something. Well, anyway, the reason you're here, I don't care. I love it. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. And for those who don't know, Patreon, patreon.com is where you can support us. It's a way of supporting any kind of artist. There's many people on there. And ours is patreon.com slash vocal fries pod. Okay, so now let's get to the uh, email. So um, Adam emails us about Welp. And he also has a question, which I will get to. In, in relation to your comment in this latest episode about Welp being a, more an online thing, I always heard it and used it for as long as I can remember growing up here in the Cincinnati area. I always saw that final P sound as a way of adding finality. So like, yep versus yes, nope versus no. Both have feelings of being definite and final or an implication that there's no room for debate. Welp also carries that feeling, in my opinion, of something being already finished or having already happened. It's an interesting um, theory. I I never thought about it. I agree with Adam. I, I do feel like it's like... It's kind of like you're, res- I don't want to say resigning yourself because that makes it sound like a negative connotation, but like it does feel like you're resigning yourself to whatever has happened because it's done. Mm-hmm. But do you have that feeling for like, yep and nope? Um, no. For some reason, when I do yep and nope, I feel like I'm like, he- not hedging, but like softening it. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Um, but with whelp, I don't feel like I'm, I'm softening. Yeah, yeah, that's, I agree. Yeah, yeah. But I say it IRL and you don't. I uh I mean if I do I'm being I'm it's kind of like saying BRB or LOL or something, you know. Like it feels very internet-y to or me. Or how I just said IRL. <laughs> I, I I don't actually say IRL. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah. Huh. So anyway, that's an interesting theory, and and uh, hey, let us know if you have the same thoughts about it, or if there's another interpretation, because this could be one of those things where people vary depending on when they acquired it. Because whelp for me is yeah. late, a late oh. acquisition. I wonder if it's 
Midwest has a sort of theme going on with Welp. Right. So that's what he says later. So, so well, the bus already left. Feels like there's wiggle room for options to change things. Well, the bus already left, but I might have time to catch at the next stop or something like that. Welp, the bus already left. To me, carries the sense that there's nothing to be done about it. I agree with that. Definitely. Um, almost a what is done is done sense because of that feeling of finality that P adds. Not sure if that also ties into the OP usage around here and the Midwest in ah. general, although I always felt like that was a shortening modification of oops. Maybe. Oh. I don't know. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's an interesting theory, and I think I kind of agree. He also has a question about McWhorter. Basically, like, how problematic is McWhorter? And if 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 he's problematic... What should he do about it? And for those who don't know, John McWhorter is... What is he, a professor at Columbia? Sure, I don't remember. <laughs> but but he's the host of Lexicon Valley. Yes. And a frequent... What is it, like, The Atlantic? Yes. Uh, contributor? Yeah, he wrote an yeah. interesting article in The Atlantic about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now she's being accused of... Um, engaging in verbal blackface. She wasn't in front of um, Congress or uh, in front of, let's say, a mostly white group of people. I think it was more mixed. Um, and she used a slightly different dialect than she, than most people are used to from her. And so people thought, well, mostly conservatives, thought, aha! Gotcha. She's trying to sound like a black person. She's a, you know putting on verbal blackface. Yeah, and right. And when you said that she sounded slightly different, that is her sounding slightly different than what we might see on C-SPAN or right, that's the interview she does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she sounded different to what most people are used to from her because they're usually it's in front of a mainly white audience. Right, yeah. Um, and he, mo- he mentions also that Obama also came uh, in for similar kinds of criticism that he would sound different when he was talking to mainly black audiences versus mainly white audiences. Right. And we talked to Dr. Nicole Holiday about this. Yes. Yeah. And the idea is that he wasn't really authentic because he couldn't possibly, because he's so educated, that couldn't possibly be his actual. Oh, my God. And of course, we have to think about how white uh, politicians never (laughs) don't face the same kind of, are they being authentic? Well, yeah, we rarely hear them use more than one dialect. And when they do, it does sound, it does sound inauthentic. (laughs) (laughs) They they might actually be inauthentic. Yeah. (laughs) They they often try to put on this folksy sounding thing. That just doesn't work. Or they try to speak, uh, I'll put quotes around it, Spanish, because it's not a sincere effort or whatever. Right. It often isn't. So anyway, he's absolutely right that it's not fair. She... The, she is quote switching. Like, she really is mm-hmm. quote switching. It's not that she's being unauthentic. She has multiple dialects, multiple rhetorical styles. As, I mean, we all have different rhetorical styles. We all sound different and different before different audiences. It's just that no one had heard her talk like that before outside of her community. It just felt in- inauthentic to people who didn't realize who she actually was and who, what she would actually sound like. Right. But so that was a. A helpful message that McWhorter was getting out into the yes. world. <laughs> yes. And, you know, like, th- th- there are times when he is really great, like this. And, yeah. Oh, and uh, by the way, um, I think it was Tucker Carlson and some Brit, I don't remember who, were talking about this. And and Tucker Carlson mocked the idea that, there, that code switching even existed. 
Like if oh. you if you don't sound exactly the same in all instances, then you are inauthentic. Was his basically his argument? Well, he's an absolute asshole. Well, he is an asshole, but, <laughs> but he's, he's a ding dong. Ding dong. Really? You really think that? <laughs> I don't know if he know if he thinks that. It's really hard to tell with him. Like how much is disingenuousness and how much is he just doesn't understand life. <laughs> so yeah. he obviously code switches we just don't see it right because we only see him on tv on his show Mm -hmm. there's no way he talks like that to his family to his friends you know what i mean like he 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 clearly has different styles but he doesn't think it matters or he doesn't know of course it doesn't matter like in his life i mean he's not again had to like navigate the same waters that minoritized people have to navigate with their voices so but even even setting that aside, he still has to navigate different in- environments. He yeah. just, just is not aware that he's na- or or he is, and just, he just he he recognizes it and is an asshole about it. Yeah. <laughs> but he he when he's talking to other rich people, guaranteed he t- talks differently, and he probably has to be very careful of what he says to certain people. That's true. It's just. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I really can't tell if he's just evil <laughs> or not smart. Yeah. I mean, or both. Well, he's definitely both, but like <laughs> in this instance, you know? Right, right. Okay. So that's good. But then, same goddamn week, <laughs> the same goddamn week, he, there's a video of him. Of McWhorter. McWhorter. Sorry, yes. McWhorter. On, on Reason. Talking about how uh, America has never been less racist. Now, yeah. granted, the United States has been pretty fucking racist the whole time. Right. But to say that it's somehow less bad now than it was five years ago seems clearly wrong. Right. Right. It is absolutely the case that things have been worse than they are now. I mean, mm-hmm. slavery worse right? right yeah but to say that it's it's never been better than now just seems false it just manifests in different ways yeah so basically um i guess we have to be responsible consumers of mcmortar media <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and to recognize that he's somewhat more complicated than some of the other people that are oh yeah like steven pinker just a fucking don't listen to him <laughs> yeah yeah. He also peddles this whole um, it would never been less racist kind of stuff. And and it benefits people like, like Steven Pinker to yeah. say stuff like that. Yes. But yeah, I guess like there are some really problematic linguists out there. And we definitely don't want to promote their shit. And we, right. we're very careful about things. But that's why it's like hard to talk about McWhorter because he's like sometimes really great and sometimes really problematic and so it's right. like how do we talk about this guy in right. comparison to other ones where it's like well, this guy's clearly problematic yes it's true and and it's just the platform he has so he's gonna be out there so i you know i was i was even um thinking about retweeting his thing about alexandria Ocasio cortez but then i was like oh there's other people that are saying this i don't need to retweet him yeah 
So today our episode is about Chatino languages, which are spoken in Mexico. I did not know anything about them. <laughs> and Me neither. Wow, so fascinating. And Dr. Hilaria Cruz also talks about concepts of the dead, what you do after you die. I mean, it's it's really cool. It's really, really cool. It's very fun um, to talk to people where I'm just like for an hour or 45 minutes or whatever. Like, I'm learning something every second that you speak. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely the case this time. I really, I knew nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it's so close to us, Mexico. And it's just like, you know. It's thinking, true. Thinking Although, about... This not, is a little further like the, in Mexico. Not like the border, but still. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about all the the things that we don't know about land that is that we're on or that we're so close to. It's so good to be able to talk to people. Yes. And to bring their voices to the podcast airwaves. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, hope you enjoy. Hilaria Cruz is an assistant professor at the University of Louisville and a native speaker of San Juan, Kiaije, Eastern Chatino, an endangered Zapotecan language spoken in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. Through her documentation and revitalization work on the Chatino languages since 2003, she's collected and archived more than 100 hours of audio recordings of naturalistic speech in formal and informal settings. Um, she is currently researching the uh, Chatino concepts of the dead in four Eastern Chatino communities. Welcome, Hilaria. Thanks so much for, for coming to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Um, we were so interested in your work. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I, your, your reputation precedes you. I've heard so many yes. good things about you. So yes. I'm so happy to meet you virtually. Oh, thank you. <laughs> How did you decide to work on documenting and revitalizing Chitino languages? Okay, so that has a long history. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it does. Yes. <laughs> so I was born in this small town in, in, in a village called uh, Cieneguilla, belonging to this other town named San Juan Queijo. I, everyone in that community spoke uh, Chatino. And then my father uh, wanted us to acquire formal education. So then he moved the whole family to this other frontier town where everybody spoke Spanish called Juquila. In Juquila, uh, I was put in, the, in a classroom where I was... I was taught in the Spanish language. It was just like, they, I was just thrown in this environment where the teacher and everyone um, were required to, to speak Spanish. So then I, um, so I continued my education. Uh, my family then moved to the bigger city, Oaxaca City, uh, for us to continue uh, going to middle school and then high school. And then in 1991, I moved to Washington State, and then I began to learn English, and then I went to the Evergreen State College. And then and around this time, late 1990s, um, I began to 
to ask myself, um, well, you know, now I know how to read and write in the Spanish language, and I'm, I also uh, do the same for the English language, um, but why is it that I cannot uh, read and write in the Chatino language? And this is something that I really would like to be able to do. And then, so I... I began to uh, make attempts to, to write in the Chatino language, like I will, you know, jot things down. But then I was never successful at uh, this endeavor. And I, um, I will have this, the same conversations with uh, other Chatino speakers, but also speakers of other indigenous languages of Oaxaca as well. You know, we all uh, had a command of our language orally, but we did not know how to read and write in the Chatino language or, or Mixteco or Triqui or any other languages that we spoke growing up. One day, I was uh, taking a training to become an interpreter with this organization called Frente Indígena Binacional. And there were, um, the training was um, being held for indigenous people, and there were like speakers of all of these um, uh, uh, indigenous languages of Oaxaca, and we all, you know, like, um, uh, we were all presented by the trainer with this huge notebook of legal terms, and then, um, so the trainer said, okay, now translate this into your language. But how are you going to do that if you do not know how to read and write in your language? So then I thought, you know, that really bothered me, and I was just thinking, well, you know, what is going on here? Why is it that we cannot read and write in our languages? I really want to be able to do this. Um, then at the same time, I began to, to hear um, to hear and to read in the newspapers of linguists who were working with native speakers of North American languages to revive their languages. And I was thinking, I was just that, that would be so interesting. So I thought, well, maybe linguists will be able to help me um, develop a writing system, an alphabet for the Chatino language and for other indigenous languages as well. So I began to write uh, to, to linguists, any linguists that I could uh, hear of. So I began to write to them and ask them, hey, would you be so kind to help me uh, write my language? You know, I speak this language called Chatino. But this is how um, my, my sister was also very interested in the same thing. So then she, my sister, went back to Oaxaca um, around this time. And then um, she, uh, at a coffee shop, she met this um, professor of anthropology. His name is Joel Shesher. He is now an emeritus professor from um, University of Texas. So she met the professor and... Uh, um, at a coffee shop in Oaxaca, so they just began to um, uh, to have a conversation, and then uh, Joel asked my sister Emiliana Cruz, um, "Just you know, what uh, what do you do? What are your interests in in life?" And then my sister told Joel Scherzer, uh, "You know, I really would like to uh, learn how to read and write in my native language." And then Joel says, "Well, you know." Uh, me and my colleagues, Tony Woodbury and Nora England at the University of Texas, are creating a program to, um, to train speakers of indigenous languages in Latin America to study their languages. And so Joel, uh, Joel 
extended an invitation to Emiliana to come and visit the University of Texas. And then um, Emiliana joined um, the anthropology program and she began to study the, the Chatino language and grammar with Tony Woodbury along with a group of people at the University of Texas. And then a year later, I joined the linguistics program. And of course, you know, my goal was to be able to uh, to develop an alphabet for the Chatino language, but I learned that there was a whole world to be discovered in that uh, in, in, in the study of uh, linguistics. So, so that that is how I began to um, to, to document uh, the language. Do you think that your your father, who wanted you to have this formal education in Spanish, ever thought that this would be the outcome of of all of this? Um, I don't know that my father imagined uh, this this outcome, but when I was young, uh, my father um, was a he was not trained in anthropologist, but he was uh, very much in love with the Chatino culture and the Chatino language, and he will also do some recordings uh, with elders, but he did not know. Mm, he did not know wow. how to do transcriptions or anything like that. But uh, I remember having a conversation with my father once. And, um, well, he told me uh, that um, that one of his wishes was uh, for the, the Chatino language and culture not to be forgotten. That if our culture of our language um, ever died, that, that we could at least uh, inscribed in in Iraq or anywhere that we uh, existed at some point at some point in this world. So I think that you know, like maybe he did not envision um, a, a Chatino writing, but uh, I think that he hoped uh, for the culture to continue. Wow, and this is very much in the family. I love I love this story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you. So, how many uh, Chatino languages are there? I know that, you know, that's always a difficult concept because there's a very fuzzy boundary between dialect and language, but, you know, just generally. There are three Chatino languages. One, one of them is Sensontepec Chatino, Tataltepec Chatino, and a group of, of about 17 varieties that we call Eastern Chatino. And as, as you guys said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm a speaker of the San Juan Queije Eastern Chatino. And um, do you have an estimate on how many speakers there are? You know, we don't really have a, a very, how would you, how would you say, a, a very good um, good count of how many speakers are. You know, it changes all the time. Uh, the language is getting lost really quickly. Uh, like, for example, the census around um, the 2010 census said that there were about 40,000 Chatino. And the last census that I saw said that there were about 52,000. I really, you know, it's just, um, um, I don't know, really. Like, I will say between 40 and 50 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, the very common problem of counting speakers in right. any language. For sure. Um, especially if it's a smaller language. Um, so I, um, my background is more um, 
Canadian Indigenous languages. So, like, I know very little about most of the Mexican Indigenous languages. So, is there anything that you can tell us that kind of makes Chitino different or unique? Like, what is it that, that's special about this language or family? Oh, yes. There are so many special things about um about the Chatino languages or indigenous languages that are spoken in Mexico. Uh, for example, uh, the Chatino language has a very complex system of tones, even more complex than Chinese. Oh, wow. Oh. Fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. Um, and this is one of the problems um, that we had in creating uh, a, an alphabet for the Chatino language. And um, if I were to give you an example of a group of words uh, in Chatino that, that just to illustrate um, the beauty and also the complexity of the language, I, I, I will give you a set of words that you could segmentally write uh, with K-L-A. I mean, I mean, when I say segmentally mean, I mean consonants and vowels. Like for example, if I were to say something, those same words that I say, K-L-A, with a high pitch like la, I will be saying weaving loom. If I go a notch down, I say la, that will be water paddle. If I go a notch down, I say la, that's dream. If I go a notch down, um, I say "kla," that's fish, and and then if if I do a tone like a descending tone, um, something that starts at a high uh, register and goes down, it will be "kla." He will arrive, and then if I go um, a notch down, if I say "kla." He will sing, and then uh, if I want to say that um, that you will arrive, I will, I will use an ascending tone, something that begins uh, at a low register and goes up. It, so that will be kla. You will arrive kla. And then if I wanted to say that you will sing, then I will say kla. So I'm going to say those, all of those ones right now together, like in one, one fell scoop. So, so it'll, it'll be cla, 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 cla. So, so when we were trying to develop um a writing system for the Chatino language. This is something that we had to work. We have to find a pattern for this. And also, this is the reason why I could not uh, develop um, a good uh, writing system by myself because I tried, you know, before I said, well, you know, uh, that I, I tried to, you know, sit down and I tried to write the language, but I could not do it because I, the only thing that I knew how to read and write were these um, Indo-European languages, Spanish and English, but uh, Chatino is, is different. So, um, 
So this is uh, this is one of the reasons for why it's uh, it's very important to support research in minority languages because this linguistic research uh, can inform the development of an alphabet that is um, adequate and uh, for um, reading and writing. And a native language is this is what the speakers want. And in our case, uh, we really wanted to have a writing system. I understand that there are other indigenous uh, languages in North America where people do not wish to write right. their language. So that's their right. choice. But I, um, but in, in, in our community, people love uh, writing, you know, systems. And we wanted to, you know, I mean, not writing systems per se. People love writing, so uh, so they, you know, people get excited uh, at um, um, at the thought of um, being able to read and write in our language. Okay, so that was so you were asking about what is unique for Chatino. So that is one unique thing about Chatino. Now, if we go to the grammar of Chatino, Chatino has this really um, very lovely uh, system of uh, motion and. Existential and positional verbs that are very closely related to the culture. Like, for example, where are you guys right now? Tucson. I'm in Phoenix. What part of Arizona? Uh, s- um, southern Arizona. Central. Okay. Well, let's say like let, let's say that I was I, I want to use the example of Tucson, Arizona. Okay. Okay. Let's mm-hmm. say that we're in the state of Arizona and that we're in Tucson and that Tucson is um, ceremonial center for us. So we're in this community and Tucson, Arizona is the center, and all of the other towns are just like little hamlets. I mean, they. Um, so so we ascribe this sacredness to this this place called Tucson, Arizona. So then. In the Chatino language, if I want to say that um, I'm going to go to Tucson, I will use one one verb, and um, which is different from a verb that I will use if I were going to say that I'm going to go to Phoenix. So, like, for example, if I were to, to say in Chatino... I'm gonna go to Tucson. I will say, Tucson. Um, if I if I wanted to say that I'm gonna go to Phoenix, then I will say, Phoenix. So 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 you change the first consonant there. Is when you go to a sacred place. Is when you go to a place that is it doesn't hold any sacredness. Wow. <laughs> that is, f- I love that. Yeah. yeah. And, and then um, the same thing goes, like, for example, if I'm going to say, if I'm going to move to Tucson, because Tucson is our sacred place. So I will say, Tucson. So you will say, I'm going to go move, uh, stay in Tucson. And then if I wanted to say, um, I'm, I'm going to go and move to Phoenix. I will say, so, versus, so, so you have these verbs uh, that you use when you describe uh, uh, going to a sacred place and going to a, a versus a, a non-sacred place. So, and this is something that you really have to know in the culture, right? So, so, 
And the, and, and the same thing goes with uh, positional verbs. Uh, for positional verbs, uh, like, you know, to hang, to sit, and to stand, uh, it's, uh, there is a great richness in, in positionals for Chatino, but other Zapotecan and other Oromangian languages as well. Like, for example, we use those verbs for, um, um, for poetry. Like, for example, in, in English, this will sound a little bit weird, but uh, uh, there is this, this special oratory that greets people when they come for um, a special celebration. So this is just to honor all of the guests. So then you will say, uh, so, so the way that you will uh, greet your guests at a party, let's say that you're very grateful because uh, these guests have made the point to come uh, to your um, celebration, let's say that you're getting married, right? So, so you're giving a toast and you're saying, oh, the ones that took it hanging, the ones that took the invitation hanging, the ones that took the invitation standing, the ones that took it sitting, those are the ones here. So basically, those are the ones that took our invitation. So basically, what happens is that you play with positional verbs to make um, a beautiful expression. In Chatino, this sounds really beautiful. In English, of course, you guys use other resources, but in Chatino, we use positional verbs for uh, for composing uh, poetry. I mean, I'm just, I'm listening to you, and I just I'm thinking of how hard it would be for um, someone who did not grow up speaking this language to learn this language. It is it is very hard because. Um, um, uh, the tones, the, the complex system of tones is also used for inflecting verbs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, my, um, my, my friend Gregory Stamp, uh, who is a great morphologist, and, uh, and I are right now working on a paper on uh, tone inflection on verbs. Uh, Gregory Stamp says that uh, the Chatino verb inflection is much more complex than uh, Sanskrit. Wow, that's saying something. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, I'd love to see the paper when it's ready to be read by people. <laughs> Definitely, yes. <laughs> On the Wikipedia um, entry for uh, Chatino, there's um, a, a sentence basically saying, that Chitinos call their language something I'm not going to try to pronounce. Yes, chatnya, uh -huh. <laughs> chatnya, which yeah. means difficult word. Is that is that accurate? Okay, um, there are some Chatino languages that are uh, more disyllabic, and there are more. Uh, there are some Chatino languages that are monosyllabic. So when you were asking me about how many Chatino languages were there, and I, I I said that there were about 17 varieties, different varieties of Eastern Chatino languages. So uh, one of the things that distinguish each one of those varieties is that each one of those languages have their own set of tones. Oh, so, my God. Yes. Yes. So like for, yes. Like, for example, if I was at the market and I hear a group of people speaking, since they speak their own register of tones, I right away know that they are not from my community. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so I, I'm saying this because um, in that case, like for example, chatna. So since each word has their own tone, don't then um, that that uh, the the meaning of that you know uh, of the second part of cha is word. We know that, but nya 
for me is um, with the tone. It isn't a descending tone. Uh, if I were just you know, like um, describing just this this word nah, in isolation sounds as low. But uh, in speaking with Chatinos of other varieties of Eastern Chatino, they tell me that it sounds to them like uh, uh, spicy. Uh, for others, it sounds like chile. So really, uh, I mean, the gist of the story is that we do not know uh, what is the origin of that word. Ah, yes. okay, cool. Yeah. This is kind of again a very broad question, and <laughs> uh, but like, why why is Chatino and especially your variety of it important to you? I I, I love the Chatino language just because I, I you know I grew up speaking in the language. Um, uh, it is uh, part of my culture, um, and the the reason why um, I began to uh, my journey in the study of uh, the Chatino languages, um, beginning with the San Juan Kiaiji Chatino, was because this is the language that I know. And this is the language that I have um, uh, the most direct access to. And, um, and it is because my family lives there. And, uh, and it, it is because it's the, the most accessible language to me in particular. But I am interested in, in learning all of the different Chatino languages because each one of them informs the other. Like, for example, one of the characteristics of San Juan Kiaije Chatino is that we are a very monosyllabic language. But there are some uh, Eastern Chatino languages, such as Zacatepec Chatino, that are still... Um, Disyllabic. They are much more conservative in terms of linguistics. So for us, Zacatepec uh, Chatino really um, um, informs our study of San Juan Kiaije Chatino. So uh, just by chance uh, that we are from San Juan Kiaije Chatino, we began to study this language. But uh, but I think that um, um, all of the Chatino languages are are important and. Um, so I don't, um, I, I don't see that any one of them has more importance than the other. There, when um, you said there's about forty to fifty thousand approximately speakers, it's hard to measure. Um, are do they do speakers tend to be bilingual at this point with Spanish? Yeah, most uh, most speakers are bilingual at this point. Uh, only like I will say, like elders, like uh, sixty and up. Uh, are uh, they are uh, still um, monolingual, but but since uh, but since since the inception of schools uh, have uh, used Spanish as the language of inst instruction, so that that makes um, every young person bilingual. Right. Um, oh, so speaking of young people, does that mean that um, the transmission from parent to child is still something that's going strong? For some families, it really depends on the family because uh, lately I see that many families are choosing not to teach um, Chatino to their children. They are speaking Spanish or English to their children. Spanish, I would say. There are some Chatinos who lived in the southeast um, United States because they migrated here seeking for jobs. And um, so they speak Spanish to their children. 
And do do you think that's, I mean, I can guess, but do you think that's mostly kind of survival mechanism? Kind of, uh, this is the language that's that's going to, you know, of the government or of the ed- um, education system, so we'll speak Spanish? Yes, definitely. It is just very sad because, um, like, for example, I remember when I was younger, and uh, and I will go back to my community, like the elders will say, oh, you're so lucky, uh, you know Spanish, we're really stupid, oh, uh, we no. only speak one language. No, 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 I only speak one language, does it make me stupid? Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> this, so is, this, is, this, is, this is how, you know, like we have, you know, been made to, you know, uh, to believe. The last sort of big question we wanted to talk to you about in... Um, it has to do with your research on the concepts of the dead. Uh, what con- concepts have you uncovered in your research and what makes it interesting or important? Um, one of the beautiful things that um, about the concept of the death and that uh, right now I teach a Native American religions class and I have seen that I have seen that it has uh, a lot of similarities to some of the concepts in North American uh, conception of the death as well. Okay. So uh, the Chatino people believe that, uh, that uh, each person has at least two souls. And when a person dies, their souls exit their body and they take a 71-mile 71, 71 journey to the world of the dead. And, and this journey that they take is through the Chatino region. And the Chatino region can, uh, and the people, Chatino people can tell you, this is the mountain where the dead people live. So, uh, so it is a very close connection that people have with land, with space, and with culture. And then, uh, in this in this town, Zacatepec, um, they have specialists that guide the dead soul. Uh, through each one of the steps in that in that journey, so when when the person dies, the family hires this specialist who knows this uh, this trail. The person, the specialist, recites to the dead person. Okay, so uh, you now are gonna begin your embark your journey to the world of the dead. Uh, there is one place, uh, and this, and so they have to climb up a mountain called Yacche um, uh, in Chatino, which is in Spanish you will translate uh, as you know um, Cerro Espina or like a thorny mountain. So it is a, it is a really one of the highest mountains in the region. So they say, okay, so when you you are traveling, when you reach. This place and this mountain, in the Thorny Mountain, on the side of the hill, you will find, uh, you will come to a place where the earth resembles some steps. So you are going to, so when you get to this place, you are going to count nine steps. Count, count the steps. If you count nine steps, that means that you are dead. Because in Chatino culture, number nine is assigned to the dead. So then they, they tell the, 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 the corpse. Um, so once you have counted the nine steps, if you count nine steps, that means that you are dead. Okay, so, so then go continue your climb up to, on, uh, on the thorny mountain. When you get to the top, then um, 
you will see, check your clothes. If you see nine cuts in your clothes, that is another sign that you are dead. So if you then, uh, if you got those two signs that you are dead, then what you do is take a look at the west because Zacatepec is on the west. Turn to the west, take one last look at your community because now you do not, be, you do not belong to the, to the world of the living anymore. You must continue your journey and do not come back to the world of the living, not even uh, in dreams. Because, so, the, so there is this ambiguous uh, relationship with the dead. On the one hand, they're believed to be ancestors and protectors of the community, but at the same time, they're also um, detrimental to the living. So then, as they continue on their journey, they tell them, okay, so when you get to this other place, um, uh, there is this like a, like a huge rock, you will encounter some doves that are going to be there hanging on the, on the trail. You need to uh, evade this, uh, these, these doves. Um, you have to throw some amaranth seeds to them. So while they're eating, you just kind of scurry away and just continue your journey. So when the person dies in Chatino, uh, the families prepare them for uh, for their journey. They uh, in the coffin they put uh, amaranth seeds. They put um, anything that a person will need for their journey. They put water. They put food. But any everything is in the miniature. They put um, they put a new set of clothes. They put uh, sandals. They um, in, in some of these Chatino communities they also put um, uh, some live beads. Uh, bees and um, and live tadpoles. All of these uh, things uh, and little these little things uh, are gonna help the dead person to reach their journey to the world of the dead. So then, um, so so that's why they put the amaranth seeds because the amaranth seeds, the dead soul is gonna use the amaranth seeds to um, um, to evade. Um, to distract the doves that are going to show up on the trail. So then they tell them, okay, so once you have uh, uh, evaded those doves on the trail, you will come to a place. This is my community. You will come to a place in Cieneguilla, and there you are going to find a little, uh, you are going to find a meadow. And that meadow you are going to have to put on a show. You are going to have to dance. So you dance, and if you are a, a guy, you're going to have to whistle and maybe play an instrument. And many elders in Chatino communities are, uh, when they don't know how to dance, and they, they know that they're going to die soon, they ask for dancing lessons because they want to uh, <laughs> pass this challenge. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then uh, they, um, they, they're told, well, once you have passed this challenge, then you get to this other town named Ixtapan. There, you have to cross the river. If you don't know how to swim, then take the tadpoles. And the tadpoles oh. are going to help you cross the river. And then as you continue your road, uh, you will encounter other wild beasts. When you encounter this wild beast, take out the bees. Because the bees uh -huh. are going to go and stunt the, the, <laughs> the wild bees so that you can reach the world of the dead. So 
So it is a wonderful connection that people have with land and with souls. And it is interesting because in my Native American class, I'm also uh, finding out that Native American people also believe that souls take a, take a journey, but the journey is on the Milky Way. Oh, oh. I didn't know that. And there is actually some uh, ceramics and iconography in the, um, in the Alabama uh, mounds where uh, they also have um, images of a raptor, a dog, um, um, bones, and skulls. And there is especially one hand with the eye. And apparently, all of these um, instruments are also buried with the dead and are also used to aid the soul on their journey to the Milky Way. So, so for North American uh, indigenous people, it is the mil- the journey is on the Milky Way, and for Chatino people, it is by land. Wow. Right, that's really cool. Yeah, I, is there some sort of importance for um, tricking the dogs? Dogs in this in this um journey we don't have a dog and for in the journey for chatino souls but there is a dog for the journey for north american oh, okay. uh, conception of the death yes and i believe that the story is that apparently uh the, the souls are going to have to cross a bridge and and that uh, apparently the dog is like the guardian of that bridge or something like that so that mountain that mountain that they the souls travel to I assume that's considered to be a sacred space it by is. Chetino people. It yeah. is. It is. Yes. Also, um, the place of the dead as well. I mean, the the, the mountain where the Chetino people believe uh, that the dead live um, also is a sacred place that people journey uh, every year or uh, during uh, high holidays. Oh, okay. And uh, you mentioned that uh, this kind of guide tells the corpse not to speak to the living anymore because that causes trouble. Is that like emotional trouble for the living? Is that yeah. what they mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, emotional, physical, and um, uh, uh, the spirit. The dead spirits can even kill you. Oh, um, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Wow. So this all kind of reminds me of... Um, Coco? <laughs> I mean, it's That's very right. different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, actually, I think that the people who did Coco uh, did a good job. Yeah, I loved Coco so much. Yeah, I yeah loved me too. too. <laughs> I, loved, I loved Coco too, yes. And I could really, I um, I could I could relate. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And yes. I am. Um, I took my, I went with my dad, who, he's Mexican-American, but his parents were Mexican. Um, and he remembers the day of the dead as always crossing the border into Mexico to go to the graves of his like tias and tios. Um, and so like, it was really, it was really important for me to see him watching that too, because it does connect for a lot of um, Mexican people. And I think it was a really beautiful thing to expose more North Americans to. Yeah, definitely. You know, to, to me growing up, uh, one of the most important holidays uh, was Day of the Dead. It is, I guess, I imagine like Christmas for uh, American children. Mm. Yeah, well, there's all the family getting together and there's lots of, you know, treats. There's foods and everything's so kind of decorative and decorated and it's beautiful. Definitely. Uh, one of the one of the beautiful things about Chatino culture is that uh, people take care of themselves um, by, you know, offering food and providing food for anyone. I mean, this is the way people, you know, 
um, survive famines. So generosity, generosity is a very important thing. So when you go to someone's house, um, people without asking you whether you are hungry, they'll just put a plate on, on um, a, a plate of beans or whatever they have uh, to offer. Uh, so when you go and visit someone's house and they don't have anything to offer, uh, you know, even if they have like some warm water, they will put the warm water on your face and they will uh, uh, on a cup and they put it, you know, like place it next to you. They will say, you know, I'm so sorry that you have come uh, at a time of, you know, uh, where we don't have a lot of food, but come back during the day of the death and then we will eat meat and we will eat, uh, we will have a feast. Oh, wow. I think we could learn a lot of lessons from that because I kind of, I, I grew up in that way too, where um, like my friends would come over and my, my dad would just, I think, feel like almost like offended if they didn't take something or, you know, anyone comes over like, I got to offer something, got to give them something. Um, but we have this like very individualistic kind of thing going on in the, in the U.S. anyway, and, and the collective spirit or like helping our neighbors is, is such a more healthy way to, to be um, connected to everyone. Definitely. Yes. Have you found a nice community in, uh, in Louisville? Yes. I know you're, you're new there, but, and congratulations. Cause last I heard you were a postdoc. So that's very exciting. Oh yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. No, I have found a wonderful community here in, in Louisville. Uh, I'm, um, actually I've begun, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this, group uh, with together with other uh, friends from Argentina, we get together and we do what, what they call tertulias. So we get together and we, uh, we have, uh, we basically we discuss current topics. I, I, I have a lot of fun with them. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm one of those. Yeah. I feel like non-linguists, we have a lot of non-linguists that listen. Um, and even just me as a linguist who doesn't work on this kind of stuff, I, I want to like be able to to be more respectful or do more when it comes to helping, um, whether it's revitalization or helping languages not die. Um, is there any advice you have for us for how we can just be informed or what we can do as non-linguists or non-people non who are working on this? I think that uh, one of the... Um the great injustices that have happened with uh, indigenous languages with the formation of nation states is that, um, that they have not um, recognized uh, the contribution of indigenous languages and people, uh, nation states have um, worked really hard to erase this um, this diversity, and uh, so this has been our experience in Mexico, and this has been the experience in the United States, and this is the experience of uh, my uh, speakers of minority languages in Turkey, in Russia, and in many um, Western societies. And I think that uh, one of the one of the things that people from um, Western states um, can do is to inform themselves and to uh, to help change policies. Like for example, right now in many Chatino communities or in many indigenous uh, communities in Mexico, for that matter, uh, people are still uh, being taught with Spanish 
as a language of instruction, even if some, even if those children or students uh, speak a native language in their homes and in their communities. And uh, one of the things that I would love to to be able to see is um, for schools to be able to to use indigenous languages as a language of instruction. And I, and I think that one thing that people uh, um, in, in Western societies can do is um, help change policies towards that. Yes, I'm absolutely pro being taught in the language of your culture. I think it's extremely important um, for the child's development in many ways. Is there like one last message you would like to leave our listeners? I, I want to say that uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast and um, <laughs> get in touch with me if you want to learn more about uh, tonal languages, languages of Mexico or endangered languages for that matter. Just uh, thank you for your support of um, minority languages in the world. Okay, oh, great. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Um, so we also leave our listeners with our final message, which is don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. The Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Vocal Fries Pod. You can email us at vocalfriespod at gmail.com, and our website is vocalfriespod.com.